Welcome to Cast Conversations, a bi-weekly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. Hello everyone, my name is Rosie O'Brien Wojtek and I'm the current president for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Our special guest today is Doug Casey. Doug is the executive director of the Connecticut Commission for Education Technology, CET. The Commission for Educational Technology was established in 2000 by Public Act 00187 and is defined as the principal educational technology policy advisor for state government. As executive director of CET, Doug designs and manages the statewide educational technology plan to ensure the effective use of technology in Connecticut schools, libraries, universities, and towns. Through a robust network of partners, he champions initiatives that address digital equity, computer science education, information literacy, data privacy, and public and private partnerships. Doug is a great advocate and a voice for the equitable and ubiquitous access and use for technology across Connecticut, as well as through his work with organizations such as the State Education Technology Directors Association and the International Society for Technology and Education, known as ISTE. It is great to have Doug with us today to help us gain a better understanding of how policymakers, educators, and in fact all stakeholders across the state can harness the effective and seamless use of technology to actively engage learners of all ages with equitable and ubiquitous high-quality digital tools and resources. Not an easy task, especially with the current funding issues facing our state, as well as all of the challenges to make education equitable. But as people who know me know, I'm very passionate about the effective and seamless use of technology to enhance and actively engage students in learning, as is our special guest today. This should be a very exciting and interesting conversation, so let's get started. Welcome, Doug. Thanks so much, Rosie. It's a pleasure to be here and talk about the important work that we're doing, right in line with the important work of CAS. Great, thank you. I'd like to begin by having you describe yourself. Tell us a little about how you got into technology, your personal journey to becoming the executive director of the Connecticut Commission for Educational Technology, CET. Sure. So mine is not the typical route. Many futurists predict that there are multiple careers for today's students, and that was certainly true for me. I started off as a middle school English teacher and then did the other thing you can do with a major in English and undergraduate, which is I went into publishing and uh, had a great time of it. Worked at the Smithsonian's Office of Education, where I was right in the middle of a transformation from print to digital publishing, which got me really interested in technology. And in that shift to technology, I went over and did work in the House of Representatives and work in the intelligence sector, actually, when I was living in Washington, D.C., and shifted over a little bit later to technology management for marketing and communications firms. And then that really led me back to education as I found that the customers that we were working for, our clients, the ones that really got me excited were the ones with education missions. And so it brought me back and I came on board to CREC, the Capital Region Education Council, back in 2006 and served as their technology director for 10 years, which is a wonderful experience, a great organization that gave me insights as to how schools can really benefit from technology and also looking at regional and statewide solutions. So you've seen a lot of changes in technology through the years, I'm sure. 
So give us a brief description of the work that's been done by CET, for example. Who are the members of CET and what are some of the commission's most important responsibilities? Sure. So the commission, as you said, was put in place in 1999 with the mission to serve as the chief policy advocate around educational technology. One fact to keep in mind is that the commission really advocates on behalf of K-12 higher education and libraries and increasingly towns. So really looking at the continuum of learning and how technology can support that. The commission's chaired by our state's chief information officer, Mark Raymond, who is a wonderful leader and and manager, not just in the commission's role, but really on behalf of the state. The commission has 19 members who are all appointed by a diversity of organizations representing the governor's office, the legislature, We have technology business leaders, chief information officers, town managers, and superintendents. So it's a really diverse group of folks. I I encourage people to think of it as your education technology think tank at the state level. So in addition to our core members who are just a dream to work with, We also have several advisory councils. Soon after joining the commission, I tried to reinvigorate our advisory councils and go out and actively recruit people who are much smarter than I am and who are subject matter experts in K-12, in libraries, in education technology practices across those realms. So uh, really, I am extremely fortunate to have more than 40 advisory council members who are weighing into not just the mechanics of what we do, but really setting priorities and advocating on behalf of their constituents, which is so vital. And asking those tough questions, I'm sure. Yes. So like Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village to raise a child. It must take a whole group of people to keep technology going in the state. It does. (laughs) It does. Yeah. So earlier I mentioned that the Connecticut Education Technology Plan that you guys have put together. In that plan, there are several goals and initiatives that all educators will find timely and interesting. But let's talk about, to start with, the infrastructure, because without the bandwidth, the ubiquitous access, we have nothing. And as you know, when the technology is available, it's great when it works, but when it doesn't, it's really frustrating. So how, as a state, are you able to help us keep that going? And that's a great place to start. I would encourage everyone listening in to take a look at our state education technology goals and plan. The reason why we called it goals and plan is we have a number of overarching objectives, what we call goals, that will span years and years to come. They include themes of equity and also looking at how do we do more with less. You touched on the current and at least for the foreseeable future, sort of financial challenges that we're looking at. So we can't just be looking at solutions that cost everybody an arm and a leg. We have to be looking at working together and working smarter. And so we did release last summer our five-year education technology goals and plan. Really hinges on eight core initiatives, which fall into three practice areas, which include infrastructure, digital learning, and data and privacy. So as you said, Rosie, the place to start, it may not be the most exciting, but it's Mm -hmm. the infrastructure part. It's hard to cook when you have no electricity or (laughs) gas, and it's the same thing when it comes to technology. And it's funny, I think in some ways we've been spoiled in Connecticut because we have a phenomenal fiber backbone that connects every single school district in the state, and that's through the Mm -hmm. Connecticut Education Network. It was one of the first initiatives that came out of the commission and statutorily written into the laws that govern what we do. 
the Connecticut Education Network has been able to connect every student at the state at or usually far above the recommended connectivity speed of 100 kilobits per second. We also connect 36 colleges and universities, nearly 200,000 higher education students, and obviously the half a million plus K-12 students. We're connecting more than 100 towns, 120 libraries, and also sort of a fun fact is we're supporting what we call open access customers, including Yukon Health and Jackson Laboratories, which really depends on the incredibly robust backbone of yeah. the Connecticut Education That's- Network. It's amazing that we're supporting that many people. Exactly. But I would also say that my hat's off to Ryan Kachandi and the rest of the team at CEN. They are in number small but mighty in capability, and the redundancy that they've developed and planned into the network is phenomenal. And under Mark Raymond's leadership as well, it is a highly robust, highly sustainable, highly scalable network. You may not know this, but the network has grown 50% year over year to support the explosion of technology in our schools, colleges, and libraries. Another interesting part of what the Connecticut Education Network does is it provides really bundled education services. So it provides free filtering for schools, which is absolutely critical. And it also provides distributed denial of service protections and mitigation. Really, DDoS, as we refer to it, has become an increasing problem. Uh, You may not know this, but with just 5 or $10 worth of payment or Bitcoin, you can implement a DDoS attack, which can literally bring down an entire school network, district network, or town network. To put it in sort of layperson's terms, this is sending an amazing amount of data onto one network. It's like the physical equivalent of parking the Los Angeles freeway on your front drive right in the middle of rush hour. So it has become a challenge. And the to CDM, say the least, everything stops, correct? Well, everything would stop if it weren't for the mitigation services mm-hmm. that CN puts in place. It's really kind of a gatekeeper to not only reduce that junk traffic, but let the good traffic get through. So teaching and learning can continue to take place. And quite frankly, schools are extremely internet dependent. Uh, Mm -hmm. Forget about the teaching and learning part of it. Think about transportation systems and your internet security cameras and just having lunch with your point of sale services and all the other systems that depend so heavily on access to the internet. It has really become a key service that CN has been able to deliver at no additional cost to our customers. So it's a point of pride and talking with folks from around the country, they point to CEN as as the quote-unquote poster child for efficiency and service delivery. So we've got a great foundation for connecting our schools, libraries, and universities. That makes sense. So can you tell us where people can find the Connecticut Education Technology Plan? I'm sure it's on your website. It is. If they wanted to look for it, where can they look? Sure. Uh, I would encourage folks to go to www.ct.gov slash ctedtech, and then they can click on the publications link. And there they'll find 
a link to the five-year plan. They can find links to other reports that we've developed. Just this week, Chairman Raymond sent off a letter to the FCC encouraging support and continuation of provisions that would lead to an open internet, the net neutrality. So we publish frequently up there and encourage folks to check in and download the resources that are available there. Excellent. So hopefully our listeners will check that out. As you know, a big concern is the issue of digital equity. Many students do not have access to broadband outside of the classroom, which is a huge challenge for teachers and students, and it's often known as the homework gap. What can be done to alleviate this? Sure. It's a great question. So I think you kind of fan out from wiring schools, and what schools look like are a lot of one-to-one programs. So to give you a sense of this, we conducted a survey Based on that survey earlier this year, we saw what looks like about 58% of middle schools are one-to-one and 71% of high schools are one-to-one, meaning one computer per student. And so I think when you think about having wireless access and fiber to schools, it's great. But what about all the learning potential when those kids walk out the door with these primarily Chromebooks is what Mm -hmm. we've seen uh, because they're powerful and cost effective. And so we really wanted to try to address the what's called the homework gap, which is getting kids online outside of school. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. We've really talk about not just access at home, but outside of school, because home can look differently to different kids. Some kids have joint custody situations where they're going to mom's uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and dad's Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And uh, every other Sunday. And and every other Sunday. And some kids have jobs where they can take breaks and get some work done. And so I think we really need to look at this as when they leave the school property, how can they continue to learn using technology, doing their homework, doing research, working on projects. So based on census data and information from Pew Internet Study, we're estimating that about 8% of students don't have access outside of school. 8% is a single digit. It doesn't sound that dramatic, but when you really impose it on top of the public school students, you're talking about 40,000 kids who are going home to uh, a location that's not wired and they can't get online. So I think this is an important issue that we think about even from a fiscal concern of if you're investing all this money in technology as a school district, are you really getting the most out of that Mm -hmm. investment? So, you know, as a side note, we talked about the makeup of the commission earlier, and I would just raise some kudos to our members of the Infrastructure Advisory Council. Their diverse perspectives really led us to, I think, what's a sound solution to this, which is developing a digital equity toolkit. And I point to their perspectives because it was the combination of university, library, and K-12 representatives that really brought about the realization that getting kids online is a community challenge. It is something that communities are uniquely challenged and equipped to address. Any given town is going to have some kind of library resource, some kind of commercial resource to get kids online, and they should have leadership team that can come around the issue. And so we developed what we call a digital equity toolkit, which we'll be releasing soon. It's out for a national review to get 
input and hopefully make it even better than it is now, but it really centers around a few core components, which is assembling a leadership team. And that leadership team could and should include beyond just your school principal and superintendent, the quote unquote usual suspects who Mm -hmm. of course care about this, but really looking at local business leaders, librarians, your possible anchor institutions like a JCC or YMCA, and folks who really care about the local education system and taking care of this issue. And then from there, looking at ways to measure the need, right? So which kids, is it a potential neighborhoods that don't have connectivity because providers just aren't there? Trying to come around that data and identifying where the greatest needs are and where those are located. So obviously getting the right data and identifying the need is important and encouraging schools to take simple steps just like asking about connectivity needs at the beginning of the school year so you've got some good data and can address those needs directly. And then probably most importantly is looking at where the existing resources are. So providers like Comcast and Cox already have low-cost solutions for qualifying families. We know that the libraries have... Obviously, they have computers, but also some libraries are starting up loaner programs for access points that students can use. And so we're really looking at this again as a community-based problem and solution. We're going to release the equity toolkit, and we really want feedback from communities as to what's working and where they would suggest making improvements. Over the course of time, we want to start adding case studies in and really have a sort of network effect where we can encourage communities to work with each other and help each other address this issue mm-hmm. as a statewide issue. Yeah. Excellent. So when you release it, will it be out on your website or how will it will pe- be right on okay. the, that publications page? <laughs> and the other thing that I would mention is we have from a communications channel, we have a statewide listserv that's got nearly 250 education technology and school leaders enrolled. And so it's a great peer-to-peer community where folks can share updates. They can send out a frantic, oh my gosh, we've got this problem at our school. Is anybody else seeing it? And you immediately get a dozen responses. So that's one of the key channels that we use to get the word out about important work that we're doing. Perfect. And that's probably one of the most powerful ways to connect with people. I can remember when I did my dissertation and I had a question and when I was working on my doctorate and we would put something out at night and the next morning you'd have all these answers. It's great. From around the world. I mean, it was (laughs) while you're sleeping, you know, (laughs) but yeah, great, great. So another concern that I have, I mean, being a building principal, is that we also have schools across the state and even across the same district who have fewer computers per student and inequitable wireless access. How can CET work to improve equity for all students? Sure, that's a great, a great question. So one of our initiatives is to maximize the, the funding that's going into technology. And one of the key channels for that support is through the E-rate program. So some of the research that we've done, and and these aren't hard and fast numbers because we're not done with the research, but upwards of $6 million of funds that are potentially available are not being used. And that's for the category one, which is the basic connections to schools, as well as what's called category two, which would be, think of as sort of internal wiring. So your Mm -hmm. appliances and hardware to support wireless and switching those kinds of components. And so we're taking a multi-pronged approach. We're doing some research on this, but we're also partnering up with a group called Education Superhighway, which is a national nonprofit that many people are familiar with. They're an advocacy group and a research group to look into 
how to maximize E-rate across every state, just to make sure that folks are getting the most out of the program. Traditionally, Connecticut has put more into the E-rate program than we've gotten out of it, and we want to change that. So school districts should be receiving contact from Education Superhighway, if not already, very soon. And they have a phenomenal group of consultants who are just going to have conversations with schools about their needs, helping them apply for funds in a smart way that gets them the results that they're looking for. So we're excited about the partnership, and we want nothing more than to help our school districts get the most out of those funds that they can. Great, great. So yeah, so keep them coming. No, yes. I'm just <laughs> sorry. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think there's ever enough money to do the kinds of things that we need to do. But I think that that whole equity issue is so important. Another goal or focus area is for effective digital learning for students of all ages. What is effective high quality digital instruction and or pedagogy? This can take many forms. And I think the, the importance here that I would point out is it's really not about the technology. It's really about how it's being used. I've been in classrooms where every student has a computer and we're essentially taking notes and it could be a piece of paper and the effect wouldn't be any different. It's mm-hmm. the same pedagogy. And so I think as we look at the need less for a prescriptive pedagogy and more for the opportunity to take chances and innovate, as challenging as that can be with the current list of requirements and Mm -hmm. obligations and with funding shrinking. But one of the resources, again, that I would point to would be a report that we just released, uh, developed in partnership with CAPS and a consultancy called Innovation Partners America. It's called Charting New Frontiers in Student-Centered Learning, and it really looks at the basic question of if we know that student-centered, technology-enhanced teaching and learning is the way to go, why have we not seen more of a systematic uptake in Connecticut schools? And, And certainly not from a sort of judgmental or punitive standpoint, but really looking at what's in the way. Why aren't we seeing more innovative teaching and learning systematically? And so the report, really, it's Connecticut Voices. We've interviewed more than 20 different education leaders from state agencies all the way down to education technology companies that serve our districts, advocates and nonprofits, and really looking at answering some core questions. And the recommendations that we came up with really center around the need to have a core vision for a consolidated, comprehensive vision for the graduate of the future. Interestingly enough, an article today just came out about comparing Connecticut to Massachusetts, and it was an interesting contrast if you look at the different aspects of our systems and and how can we make things better. Everybody that we spoke with, they may have slight differences in opinion as to the how, but everybody's on board with helping our kids really achieve that college and career readiness goal that that we're all Mm -hmm. after. So again, that that report is available through our website, and we're always looking for ways to support authentic, hands-on, project-based, mastery-based learning where we advance kids based on when they're ready to go as opposed to just strict matriculation rules. 
I mean, the pacing guide today, we're here, tomorrow we're there. and Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's so much great work that's going on. I would encourage, even, even if nothing else, just to look at the report as a compendium of best practices and great work that's going on already in Connecticut. Sounds like your website has a lot of great resources for people. So I hope they're listening, writing these down, and <laughs> we'll check them out. So right along with this, anyone who knows anything about ISTE knows that they've had standards for quite a number of years. In September of this year, the commission unanimously endorsed the ISTE educator standards, making Connecticut the first state to endorse both the student and the education frameworks. Can you explain to our listeners a little about the ISTE standards and how the use of these standards can support and enhance the effective use of technology for all learners, teachers, and educational organizations in Connecticut? Absolutely, absolutely. So one of our statutory requirements, I think it sounds like we've got to do it, we love doing this, (laughs) is to establish what is called computer proficiency standards by the eighth grade. And that's sort of old language. Really, it's looking at how do we make sure that kids have the competencies that they need beyond just devices, but really the digital literacy skills. So mm-hmm. people who are familiar with the ISTE standards know that they've been the really international, as the I in ISTE mm-hmm. states, international standard bearers for technology proficiency in education. And so their new standards that came out in 2016 are really focused on sort of profiles and less about a laundry list of things that you need to do and more about the persona of the learner. So empowered learner, digital citizen, knowledge constructor, innovative designer, computational thinker, creative communicator, and global collaborator are the different personas that are defined in the ISTE standards. And I think it's a great way to look at, again, getting back to that vision of the graduate. How do we envision students equipped? And these are less about, as I said, a list of specific skills that make it outdated and more the ability to be facile with technology and learn new technologies because we blink and there's new form factors that come Mm. out. Apps are exploding. And, you know, as the father of two teenagers, I'm constantly learning from my kids about (laughs) the technology that they're learning and learning not just about a specific app, but how they're using it and how they can use technology to collaborate and get work done in ways that I never would have imagined, but they're teaching me. So I think I would just encourage through these standards and through the work that people are doing to have an active dialogue with students. Student voice is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're excited about the standards. We became the first state in the country to endorse both student and educator standards. And we are working in close partnership with the Connecticut State Department of Education and the State Board of Ed to update our student standards officially. (laughs) So those become blessed and, and out there. You know, one thing I would mention is it's one thing to take a vote and endorse and even to pass something at the State Board of Education is a big deal. But what we really are after is when we say adoption, we want to see adoption in the classroom. Mm -hmm. That's where progress is really going to get made. So we're working on a number of different fronts. We're looking at levers like teacher preparation and accreditation. How do we integrate the standard sets with other standard sets? Obviously, the Connecticut Core. Looking at training and advocacy, ISTE will soon release a teacher rubric. 
so teachers can sort of look at where their strengths and weaknesses are and provide them resources to address those. Um, looking at possible legislation, although that seems to be the last thing we want to do is <laughs> try to get into more legislation and really looking at shared curriculum, which is kind of a common theme of how do we provide resources that we can kind of crowdsource as best practice and then share out. Right, because if in fact they were implemented down in the classroom level, we might see transformation in classrooms, especially if we do have like one-to-one computing and all that kind of stuff. Once you have the infrastructure and I always call it the stuff in place, then I think teachers and students can really start to become digital citizens and really take off. So Absolutely. Can you tell I get excited when yes. we start talking about all this <laughs> and, the possible, and the possibilities? So that's great. And then we get into the funding issue. As you know, funding is an issue for all districts across the state. Can you explain how Open Education Resources, OER, can help districts? That's a great question. It's a great example of how we're trying to go after ed tech from the perspective of equity and also doing more with less. So we are excited about this work that we're doing. We see it as a great way to solve a lot of problems, but it probably starts with the definition of OER, which is free and openly licensed educational materials that can be used for teaching, learning, research, and other purposes. And really what that translates into is looking at materials that contain the five R's. And we look at those as uh, the ability to retain, reuse, revise, remix, and redistribute. So to give you an example, you might have a traditional textbook that you've purchased from one of the big publishers, and that costs a certain amount of money. It comes with very strict licensing requirements on it. You can't make photocopies and send them out. You can't take pieces of it and reconfigure it and republish it. A lot of restrictions Mm -hmm. on that. At the same time, you may be spending a lot of money on this textbook and only using maybe two-thirds of it. So there's sort of waste going on. What OER does is it is a field where we are able to create, share out, reversion, and republish digital learning materials for the greater good of the educational Mm -hmm. community. Importantly, it's a movement that's taken on in K-12 and higher ed. The K-12 story generally goes along the lines of, you know, we're looking to save money for a school district or a school. And in higher education, the problem is more defined as cost savings for students. A study was done through a task force at the legislative level where UConn students were paying up to $1,000 per semester for textbooks. So, you know, it's a huge cost. But I think more importantly almost is this discussion about ensuring high-quality materials Mm -hmm. and the ability for professors and teachers to put together the lesson plans, unit plans, videos, assessments even, Mm -hmm. that are going to benefit their kids and really be tailored to their kids. OER is really part and parcel and needs to be there as a core support for personalized learning. If Mm -hmm. you think about personalized learning, each student is going to learn in a different way. We're going to need to differentiate instruction differently, and we're going to need to provide materials that are flexible and available for repurposing. So we're excited about this movement. One of the first things that we are doing is just gathering feedback from our stakeholders. So I've Mm -hmm. reached out to the K-12 community, had a conversation with the Executive District Leaders Roundtable group last week, and got a lot of support for the idea. 
Uh, we're also looking to dovetail that with the library and higher ed communities because we really want this to have the biggest impact that right. it can have. Interestingly, there is a huge amount of enthusiasm and support when you look at the secondary K-12 and the higher education communities because the higher education communities really are looking for more standardized, uniform materials that are consistent across professors, etc. Not in a restrictive way that reduces the abilities of professors to innovate, but really as a way of providing some standards base. And at the secondary level in K-12, there's a lot of excitement for interacting and sharing materials with the higher education community mm -hmm. because a lot of students, quite frankly, are ready for that level. Right. They're taking AP classes or they may be taking classes at community college, and so the stronger the bridges we can establish between those two communities, I think the stronger we'll be and, and sort of take down those artificial barriers between what we define as secondary and higher education. Oh, absolutely. And then if there were a way to tie in virtual field trips and some of those kinds of things where if you're working on a project, be able to talk with a scientist and not have to pay a subscription fee someplace, I think that might be a really great thing too. So I don't know if OER is working on that or... Well, the way it's going to work is we really want to capitalize on the community aspect mm -hmm. of it. And so one of the next things that we'll be doing is defining what we need for an OER platform. So this will look like a website where educators can log in and create a profile, upload materials that they've created. We're also looking for an authoring tool set. So instead of this just being a place where people create and upload and share, they can actually make materials that they can edit and, and share directly within the same platform. And so this may seem a little science fiction-y, but many other states mm -hmm. have already done this, and so we're able to capitalize on their successes and challenges. And so, you know, the really neat thing about this is we can also capitalize on the fact that we have shared standards across states. Mm -hmm. So as we develop this platform and we're sort of narrowing the field for what that specific technology will be we're also building into this the capability to share resources across state lines so we look at states like new york and north carolina and florida that have dedicated staff to working on this over the past number of years, we can start to capitalize on using their resource stores mm -hmm. as well as sharing our own with them. So this could be an initiative that is within a department, within a school, within a district statewide. It's really we're mm -hmm. trying to put the tool set in the hands of educators and leaders to decide how they want to use this. Mm -hmm. um, but we're excited about it. Yeah, very excited. I'm excited about it. And it kind of leads into the next question that I'm sure that you're out and about around Connecticut and across the state seeing people using digital technology. What are some of the best or most innovative practices that you've seen and how can we elevate, amplify, and disseminate those practices? Well, I think I don't want to call out specific districts or specific schools because mm -hmm. then I'm going to get phone calls and emails. But <laughs> come to mind exactly. No. Well, and, and, and I love I love visiting. And, and please, anybody out there who's doing some really innovative work, love to learn about and look at ways of amplifying that. I think if we look at practices in general, this really goes back to some of the discussion we had earlier about uh, project-based learning and mastery-based learning. I think you have to look at one interesting model for this is looking at that SAMR model where are we simply replacing old pedagogy with technology or are we really looking at engaging kids and looking at 
leveraging that student voice. Mm -hmm. So say, for example, a project-based approach would be to engage kids and, and ask them, you know, what is the challenge that you're looking to solve? And then based on that, what are the tools that you would use to frame the question, frame that research question? How do you parse out the work? How are you going to work together? How are you going to track progress? This all sounds like our regular work mm -hmm. days. And so it's not by coincidence. We're really looking at how do you build in that sort of authentic hands-on learning so that we can marry the content mastery with the skills mastery. John Costa, I loved to quote him as, you know, instead of looking at just-in-case learning, we look at just-in-time learning. Mm -hmm. So not that we ignore the multiplication tables and those mm -hmm. foundational elements, but that we look at much more applied learning and that we get kids really comfortable with big, complex challenges and the ability to continue learning throughout their entire lives. That doesn't become seen as a burden, but an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think some of the most exciting things I've noticed are how kids are starting to apply their learning into some kind of an authentic problem that they can solve within their own community mm -hmm. or their own school. I'm thinking about some show I saw on television where the kids had taken in a makerspace and had actually built a hand for a student in their classroom that didn't have a hand. I mean, those are the kinds of things that that we're starting to see come out and it's so exciting. That's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. And kids really feel like they've been engaged and they've solved a problem that they've defined. And that's mm -hmm. exciting for them. Yeah. It's amazing that they can even do it. I'm just shocked. We talked a lot about K-12 school districts, but the scope of CET is broader than that. How are the public libraries and the state libraries changing? And what impact can these changes have on a community of lifelong learners? Well, that's a great question. So there's so much good to be talked about with libraries, and I chalk it up to Ken Wigan, who's the state librarian and former commission chair, still serves great, great insights, and his whole team is wonderful. You know, some quick facts that, you know, when we drive by our library probably every day, and what we may not realize is that within Connecticut, we saw 20 million people visited Connecticut libraries last yeah. year. There are, technology-wise, there are 4,248 library computers used by 3.7 million people or used 3.7 million times. But beyond the sort of infrastructure part of it, we're also seeing libraries as becoming real levers for leveling the digital divide. So we're seeing wireless networks within libraries. We're seeing a lot more people come in and they're using the resources physically as well as mm -hmm. online. And, and I think importantly enough, we tend to talk a lot about the stuff, the mm -hmm. connections and the hardware, but what we don't concentrate on enough sometimes is the skills. And we just talked about the ISTE skills mm -hmm. for students and educators, but importantly, what happens to our adult learners, right? right? And so the libraries are an absolutely critical component in that equation. You may not know that more than 2 million people attended workshops last year in our libraries on topics like digital literacy, programming, cybersecurity, and other technology-related topics. So libraries are playing an absolutely essential role in our communities and statewide and doing amazingly efficient work as well. Mm -hmm. One example is the resources that 
are provided through ResearchIt, which is formerly ICON, all mm -hmm. those databases, that's delivering $30 million worth of resources for a price tag of less than a million dollars. Yeah. So it's a poster child of efficiency and delivery. Not to mention, it's also a leveling playing field. So when we were talking about the homework gap, a great place for a student who has a Chromebook and no access to be able to take it there to the library and do their work. Right. So. And to walk across the hall and ask the reference librarian <laughs> a question, right? We, we, yeah. we're, we're never going to have a lack of need for human interaction Absolutely. through all this technology. Yeah. So true, so true. So this next question that I have for you is probably one that's, as people are listening, one that's on computer technology coordinators' minds or on um, administrators' minds. It's huge. It's the Student Data Privacy Act. So how is CET assisting school districts with student data privacy issues and connections with vendors? Well, it is a hot topic, and it's been hot for about a year and a half. The statute that governs it really doesn't put any supports in place, but as we talked about with the Commission's vision at the beginning of the conversation, this really does, from a subject area, it has become an area that we're concerned about, and so we put some solutions in place. You know, the first part of the discussion is really looking at what the law addresses. And I think what folks need to remember is that the statute talks about contracts between boards of education, really meaning school districts and operators quite frequently, mm -hmm. education technology providers. And so because the statute is worded that way, we realize that we can't step in and start writing agreements on behalf of school districts. The statute really addresses those interactions and those contracts between those two parties. So what we've been able to do is to create what we've called the Educational Software Hub. And the idea behind the solution is really to put, as the word hub suggests, a focal point in place that serves as a source of education for education technology providers to learn about the statute and how they can comply with the provisions there, and also allow our education community to log in and look at the educational software that should be compliant. And so the sort of mechanics around it are, we have a student data privacy pledge that really the language in that document is a consolidated version of what the statute requires. And that pledge can really serve to educate ed tech companies as to what's required. So there's no ambiguity. They're not talking to mm -hmm. six different districts and getting six mm -hmm. different answers as to whether they comply or not. And then the other component of it is the ability for them to log into the hub, register their products, and take that pledge. And so to be clear about how this works, Signing the pledge doesn't make them compliant. Being compliant makes them compliant. Okay. And what I mean by that is they need to have some kind of contractual language in their terms of service, in their contracts with districts that addresses every single aspect of the state statute, which addresses mm -hmm. things like student data sharing, addresses targeted advertising. It puts really smart controls over these aspects of education software. You know, who's got access to that data that's being stored on their servers in the cloud? These are all really important questions. As Brian Zapla, who, when he made this quote, he was technology director in Glastonbury, now serving as superintendent in Summers, said, it's not the law itself, it was the tidal wave of compliance with this mm -hmm. law was passed in June and compliance had to be reached by October. Since then, the statute was changed to give a grace period, but we really see the hub as providing an essential place where people can learn about compliance, 
take steps to comply and really make the most out of education technology. You know, one thing I would say behind all this is we're looking to do more than just help districts be compliant. There is a very small fraction of education technology that's ever really used to its full sort of dosage, mm -hmm. right? If we're looking to see an impact on, say, math or literacy. And so we also, by using the platform that we've learned, which is by a company called Learn Platform, what we're seeing is the ability by using this tool set to both measure the efficacy of ed tech software and costs and provide a venue for districts to share information about those different aspects of the ed tech spend so that they're doing a smarter job with putting both human resources and financial resources into education software. The other aspect is beyond just this compliance aspect of it, as we look at areas like cybersecurity and privacy, it's really critical for districts to have a privacy and security plan in place. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we've partnered up with an organization called the Consortium for School Networking to put in place what's called the Trusted Learning Environment Framework. And so this is an opt-in framework around privacy and security best practices that we would encourage every district to take a look at, whether they use it as the foundation for privacy and security in their district or whether they're just using it as a calibration against what they're already doing. It addresses key areas like leadership and governance over who has access to what data. It addresses key areas like professional development, so we're sure that teachers have the kind of training and supports they need to know what good security best practices look like. And finally, that there is sufficient outreach and communication to the community. There's as much transparency as possible around these mm -hmm. issues. So how do people find out about the trusted learning environment? Is that Well, it's called Trusted Learning, and you can learn more at trustedlearning.org. Okay. Uh, and just recently, last week actually, there was a meeting that invited every district to participate, and we've got, it looks like about more than 25 school districts who are going to be participating in the first cohort. So what happen is they'll work together mm -hmm. in assessing uh, different aspects of their privacy and security program. And they'll work together to address their weaknesses, they'll share resources, they'll grow stronger together, and they'll also be part of a national network of school districts across the country they are doing the same thing using the trusted learning environment framework. And if they demonstrate mastery, they can obtain a seal. Oh, uh, everything's badges and yeah. seals these days. <laughs> Anymore, yes. um, yes. And we sort of laugh at it. But you know what? It's a great indicator to the community that they take privacy and security seriously and that they've invested the time not just to sort of meet compliance or mastery, but that on an ongoing basis they're paying attention to this and protecting not just the data of students, but also the entire education environment. That's why it's called trusted learning environment. Right. It's a safe place, not just for the physical aspects, but also the records and the data that are so important. Mm -hmm. And really, if you look at the power of data to support and amplify personalized learning, it's absolutely essential. But just in concert with that, it's so essential for schools to protect that data to Absolutely. make sure that nothing gets abused. I mean, you just think personally, if you've had any of your own like bank cards or whatever, there's been like a breach and you know just how violated you feel. Very important. It's true. And I think for that yeah. reason, 
many people can relate to it. Mm -hmm. They can understand why it's important because everybody knows somebody who's been a victim of identity theft or some other kind of of issue. So they get this and they're behind it. Mm -hmm. So very important. So we know that technology education is critical. We know that security is, is critical. And at the same time, we also know that the state budget has been slashed. So how can we support CET in the work that you do? What should administrators like me and CAST administrators be doing and advocating for? Well, I appreciate the question. The reality is the commission's here to serve the education community, not the other way around. But <laughs> Nice to know I would, that I, would <laughs> I think it's a two-way street, but yes. It is. No. But to that point, I think the best support is really just continued engagement. I would encourage our listeners to download and read the plan from our website, which again is ct.gov slash ctedtech and really ensure that the priorities and specifics in that plan align with where their priorities are. If you're running a school district, if you are leading a library, if you are uh, part of the higher education system, we want to make sure that all those constituencies are represented well and that we're prioritizing in ways that impact not just individual groups but the entire educational community. I would encourage folks to attend our quarterly meetings if they would like to. We always have time for public comment, and you can be a star on CTN (laughs) if you come, and if we continue to broadcast those meetings. You know, and of course, we could do more with funding. Not to say that, you know, aw shucks, we're just going to continue doing more with less. We will, but we also have visions for what we could do with additional funding. If we look at, for example, I think it is a logical step to look at a single consolidated student information system, for mm-hmm. example. I began that dialogue when I was at Crack, and I think it's still a huge opportunity given the number of folks who are using the same systems. We're also looking at the amount of money that goes out to the same kinds of services in a very redundant times 169 times away, for example, you know, looking at consulting services and those kinds of things. So I think there's always opportunities for us to become more efficient. I really believe in that aspect of it. So again, I would encourage folks, if they don't see a great idea in our plan, please let me know because (laughs) we want to look at weaving that in. The plan, we call it a plan specifically because it's our goal. It's what we're Mm -hmm. after. But if there's something that we're not addressing, we want to know about that. So please encourage continued feedback and engagement. Great, thanks. And one last question for you, and one that I always like to think about is, what do you see as the future of technology and education? Where do you think it's going? Wow. So being a parent, I look at what school is going to be for my kids' kids and future generations. I think we all look at that. I think if past is prologue, just firmer integration with teaching and learning. Ironically, I'm thinking we talk about technology less. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should be the last person to say that, but what we're really after is integration of technology into teaching and learning so that it is authentic, so that it's hands-on. I think looking at movements that are right on target, looking at mastery-based learning, which again, mastery-based learning You know, gosh, if you go back to hundreds and hundreds of years, really, most of human history has sort of been mastery-based learning. Apprenticeship Mm -hmm. is mastery-based learning. 
you know, Paul Revere's <laughs> apprentice, you know, <laughs> Paul Revere didn't say, you know, we're now in the forging unit and you have exactly 10 days to master this. And regardless <laughs> of your mastery, we're moving on. You know, he waited to make sure that that aspect of the craft was mastered. And right. whether that took three days or 13 days was probably irrelevant. He wanted to make sure that that was in place so you could scaffold knowledge on top of that. And mm-hmm. I think we sort of laugh about this. But in some ways, it's getting back to basics. And mm-hmm. I think technology can support that. And most importantly, it can kind of scale that. Mm-hmm. I think key to this is also going to be looking at assessments that are baked into what we're doing. Assessment gets really hard and complex when you think about you know, assessing a project versus assessing a Scantron mm-hmm. sheet. It's a lot more work and it's a mm-hmm. lot more nuanced. But I think that's where authentic learning is going to be, you know, sort of judged. And I would also say that it's important that it's not just a judgment, but it's feedback to learners on a more continual basis so that it becomes less of a sort of punitive vision of assessment and more of an empowering and interactive learning. So I think all of those components are going to be elevated and amplified with technology. And I think it's an exciting time that we're living in. There's so much great Mm -hmm. research that's going on. And I think also breaking down some of those walls between higher education and K-12 and really looking at that learning continuum is absolutely key. It's why I love what I do. It's why I think the commission's vision and mission and makeup are just really elevated because we're looking at that continuum and that greater educational community where we can all learn from each other, and it's an exciting time. It is a very exciting time, and I could sit here and listen to you all day, but <laughs> I know that our time is running out, and I just want to say it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I hope people will go out and check out your resources on your website. Also, I hope that they'll check out the ISTE standards at www.isti.org because I think there's a lot of really great information on both your site and the ISTE site. I just want to thank you so much for coming in today and having this conversation with us and for keeping all of our computers up and running so that our kids can learn and our teachers can use it every single day. So thank you. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you for joining us for this episode of CAS Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.